Hey, Dad, what do you do when you're out with friends? The waiter comes up and tries to take everybody's order, but the whole table freezes up, and everyone's looking at each other trying to find some help. Mm, that's a great question. So what, what should I do? You should have some confidence, Dad, or as our friends at Jägermeister call it, shotfidence. If everyone's having trouble ordering, here's what you do. You take charge, you grab the bull by the horns, you find that dog in you, and you make an executive decision. And just order for the table a round of ice-cold Jägermeister shots. Damn, that's cold. Because apparently, we've all been drinking Jägermeister wrong. Did not know that. How should we be drinking it? Glad you asked, Dad. We should be drinking it ice cold at zero degrees Fahrenheit. Well, that brings up other things that I love ice cold as well. And I'll tell you right out of the gate, that's going to be a candy bar pulled out of the freezer. That's my way of eating candy. Oh, I love it. On the golf course out there, you get to the turn in the middle of the round there, and you get to that little clubhouse there, and they've always got the candy bar options, and I always see they've usually got a little box of them in the freezer, and it always makes it better on a hot day out on the golf course, taking a bite of that cold, cold chocolate and getting ready to go for the rest of my round. It's the same way with Jägermeister. So wherever you are, if you're hanging out with friends at the bar, call the shots. Cheers with ice-cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume. Imported by Mast Jägermeister US, White Plains, New York. Lots of things go better together. Hockey, food, golf, peanut butter and jelly, Gojo and Golik, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. What? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. Good morning. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Gojo. Mike Golick Jr., that's me. With me, as always, Brandon Newman. What's going on, Brandon? I'm doing pretty well, Mike. Good to see you. Happy to start this new week with you, sir. I am happy to start this new week with you, too, and I am especially happy to not start this week with you as Luka Doncic, who I'd imagine is somewhere inside a coffin that Andrew Wiggins put him inside during the course of the game last night, and that is just the tip of the iceberg that we have to get to. It was awesome. Like This was one of those weekends where, again, the sports triumvirate just comes together. We had Formula One drama. We had relegation on the line in the Premier League, lacrosse final four set. And, oh, by the way, plenty of stuff from the association and the PGA Championship, who will talk to our friend Peter Burns, SEC Network host and golf announcer on ESPN Plus for this weekend in the coverage of the PGA Championship. Huge meltdown at the end of that. It was just, it was the full rush hour to which one of y'all kicked me weekend when it came to sports. (laughs) What a reference. (laughs) Perfect way to, to wrap it up. It was, but Brandon, there is really no other place to start than where we left off last night after everything that went on this weekend, man. Like, I am still basking in the glow. I saw someone say it. I am going to retweet the Andrew Wiggins dunk over Luka Doncic every time it comes up on my timeline. The Golden State Warriors took a 3-0 lead over the Mavs last night. It was absolutely insane. I was so wrong about this series as we predicted it from the start. But Golden State now, I saw teams up 3-0 in the conference finals are a perfect undefeated, I believe, like 146-0 or something insane Mm. in that range. They ain't losing from this point out, Brandon. And it's just been amazing to watch 
this team that is only two years removed from what we thought was the end of that dynastic run with the Kevin Durant-led Warriors to now find its way back here, this time being led in part by efforts from Andrew Wiggins, guys named Jordan Poole, and a big man named Kevon Looney. Listen, let's talk about this poster dunk. I'm not a huge fan of poster dunks in the NBA. The whole concept of being dunked on, I think, is way overblown. And this is a perfect example of another uh, iteration of that where I see you looking at me crazy. You think this is, oh, I just want horn. (laughs) And this is, again, like I've talked about this thing that you do, Brandon, where everyone just decides they like something. And so your brain just chemically cannot process that. And you go to this place. You're going to try to tell me that there's a part of what Andrew Wiggins did where he took off maybe two steps inside the free throw line, cocked it back. I'd say it about like he put that thing at about probably like 230 on the clock if we were going to gauge that in arm length there. Uh And then got called for an offensive foul originally on this. That was the beauty of this play is they stopped play because they originally called an offensive foul on Andrew Wiggins. Then they went and reviewed it and did Luca the absolute discredit of overturning it because I believe the referees are now abiding by a rule that I thought should be in place across all major sports, which is if some play is cool enough, it is automatically legal. Mm. Automatically legal. The mm. Robert Hunt like almost that. touchdown on the screen in the Miami Dolphins game where he was both slightly short of the goal line and an eligible receiver, cool as shit. Should have yes. counted in that instance. And yes. this was another one where they went back, reviewed the tape, and they said, good God, Johnson, we can't possibly call this an offensive foul. Look at what he did to the young man. <laughs> Look at what he did to him. Yes, okay, yes. All that on, on a bump ankle. And uh, yes, Andrew Wiggins' games travels, blah, 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 blah. Luka Doncic clearly hasn't recovered from the beer that he had uh, in Golden State. <laughs> the single most damaging beer in the history of the NBA postseason. <laughs> I think I think that may be the case. And just to go back to this little podcast that we for, do. For anyone that missed it, by the way, look, yes. Luka Doncic was pictured. And, and we don't even know if it was before this game. We don't know when the picture was taken, but I think it was right. him and Dirk Nowitzki enjoying a beer outside oh. at some restaurant. Was Boban. it Dirk with him? Oh, it was Boban. That's right. His yes. giant hand. Yes, yes, Boban. And it, 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 I think I think it was in Golden State when they they traveled there for Game One. Um, obviously, this is a, uh, in connection to Pat Beverly saying that he goes to bed at eight p.m. when he plays Steph the next day, and uh, Luka Doncic has a beer, uh, and one that he clearly shouldn't have had. I want to go back to like I said, scouting this podcast that we have here where. I think after a Jimmy Butler explosion game, I started to rank the best players left in this playoffs. And I left off Luka Dantich, if you remember. I, I think I said uh, Steph Curry, uh, Jimmy Butler, Jason Tatum, and I left it at that because Luka has officially been locked up by the Golden State Warriors. And I know that we shouldn't take – this was after game one, and we should not We should assume that Luka's going to have a bounce-back game of some sort, but this game was indicative of what we all knew after game one is that Luca ain't got it in him right now. And he did a lot to get us, get, get, get us, excuse me. He did a lot to get the Mavs in front of the Golden State Warriors for the Western Conference Finals, clap it up for young Luca, but now's not the time. 
Now's not the time. We got another international star called Andrew Wiggins uh, locking his ass up and making him a poster, which, like I said, overblown. And the reason I get back to that, the overblown, I think Luca just Luca tr- attempted to jump with him, but he wasn't jumping with him. If that makes sense. Well, yeah, because he, 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 he was he was it's two ships in the night. Because he can't jump with him. Because Andrew Wiggins, this is part of it. Like, Andrew Wiggins is the Gohan of the NBA where everyone around him just wants to draw out this dormant power that's inside. Like, every single game involving Andrew Wiggins, we get a story from someone like Ali LaForce was talking tonight on the sidelines for TNT and was saying everyone in Golden State believes Andrew Wiggins has another level to him. Like, this is Cell Saga Gohan where everyone wanted to bring out that power because they knew he was the only one that could take down the giant and Andrew Wiggins in this moment unleashed a little of that so yeah of course Luca couldn't jump with him because in addition to not being the most explosive athlete himself Andrew Wiggins a former number one overall pick for a reason like these bad bunnies were in there for him from the start mm, 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 mm. I like that I'm gonna let you yeah go ahead go ahead keep cooking keep cooking well, you mentioned Luca and and not having it because Luca now went for forty plus in back to back games in this series after being held in check in that game one. This series, this series to me is just more about the cracks that started to show around him because we can talk about and Luca said himself after the game, the first three quarters I played bad. That's on me. I'm still learning. I think after this season's done, whenever we are, I'm going to look back and learn a lot of things. This is my first conference finals in the NBA. I'm 23, man. I'm still learning a lot, which I'm sure people are going to come for him on that because as an NBA superstar, the way people perceive him, you're not supposed to have excuses like that come outside of your mouth. That being said, number one, it's actually like a very correct self-scout. And I think anyone else saying it was going to be okay, like Luca saying it in this moment's probably not going to end up being the way that he wants to go out, but it is what it is. It's out there now. To me, this is a lot more about, all right, the Dallas Mavericks are learning much the same lesson that the Houston Rockets of James Harden learned that eventually if you try and ride the wheels off one cart, really it's a unicycle at this point, eventually they're going to fall off. Like Luca is beat up at this point in the series. You saw the rest of those guys out there. Reggie Bullock went 0 for 10 tonight from the field. Mm -hmm. Bertans Mm -hmm. and the rest of those guys were afraid to shoot by the end of the game. Like it just was not a sustainable style for them. And Jalen Brunson deserves a ton of credit. That guy has been aces, especially when Luca has been on the court, but, but I think Spencer Dinwiddie was the only person that was even willing to get points in the paint outside of Luca. Uh, I, I I will I'll throw Jalen Brunson in there as well. I think especially for a guard, he does a really good job of going down and manipulating that area. But for everyone else, it was and really at the beginning of the game, the polar opposite. Golden State flipped this when all of a sudden they started driving and actually looking to score instead of just looking to drive and kick. And then Steph Curry does the thing where he goes crazy and starts hitting a bunch of ignorant shots and Clay right. Thompson pours a few in. Like Once Draymond Green hit a, I think it ended up being a long two, but a three from the top of the three-point line, Like that's kind of like when LeBron hits threes early in the game. You pack it up and go home. Like if you give Draymond that kind of ammunition after he's already been jawing with reps the whole night, and we saw him get teed up by Mark Davis, the official in this game. He did the thing where he motioned over to Mark Davis after he called a foul on him after, as if to say, All right, here's the star of your show. We saw (laughs) 
all of the arrogance of the Golden State Warriors back on display in this game. And my real question with all this becomes, Brandon, because Golden State's now going to win this. Like, again, the postmortem on Dallas will be, can they find someone else to pair with Luka? Because it seems like ball-dominant, high-usage rate, try and dish it out to the rest of the teammates. We've seen this before, and it doesn't always work out the way that you want to. So we're going to get to do the postmortem on Dallas soon. My question really becomes with Golden State, who's going to win this Series 3-0, what conversations are they going to start to be won just by nature of making the finals again at this point? Because remember, it was three championships in five straight finals appearance appearances, and then it was the last two years off. So they right. lost to the uh, Toronto Raptors the Kawhi Leonard year. The Lakers won in the bubble the very next year. And then last year we had the Giannis championship. So now if they come back and they get to the finals, and it's a, what, sixth final in nine years? Or something in that, or something akin to that? I guess, no, a sixth final in eight years it would be. I and think- potentially a fourth championship in eight years now and especially given the trajectory it starts to look a lot more like the early 2000s lakers which was the last real dynasty that we saw yeah and then you, you i think you had to throw into the the spurs in there and it was it was kind of like this where it was they took a couple years off and they come back with tim duncan still tim duncan ginobili still ginobili uh was Bruce Bowen still on the team at that point? Probably not. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Tony Parker. Tony Parker was the Tony Parker at that point in time. But, yeah, I think this is a nice bookend to what we expected from those Warriors post-Kevin Durant, right? Because let's not, let's not be too crazy and, and think that they don't have the same ingredients that they, that they had to get there. They were the first real NBA team that was like, oh, no, 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 we need three and we need – three stars and it's just a matter of how they play when they picked up Andrew Wiggins it was kind of just like a, a fingers crossed eyes closed tightly for the Bay Area like let's hope that Andrew Wiggins can replace what we got from uh, a Ke- the likes of a Kevin Durant at, at that point in his career and clearly it's exactly what they needed because Clay's not Clay's not in, in full form Clay seems no. to get hot at the, in the third quarter usually yeah, which, I mean, the third quarter Warriors are fully back as a phenomenon, by the way. The numbers that they've put up in this series, that quarter started to mean a lot to them again. They've been dominant on the glass, which was surprising. Yes. They out-rebounded them again tonight, 47-33, to for a team that does enjoy playing. You know, it's not quite the death lineup from back in the day, but it's their smaller, downsized lineup. And so, you're right about Clay. He's not Splash Brothers Clay. And really, this Golden State Warriors team is not revving all the way at the same speed that they were for that dynasty run. And that almost, to me, I can't tell if it makes it better because we don't have one dominant team in this postseason, which is strange. Like, you don't look out and go, clearly the bully. Like, even Golden State, who's about to win 3-0 here, it doesn't look exactly like it did back in the day where they were cracking people's skulls open. Though they clearly outclassed a team that just maturity-wise wasn't there yet on their journey in the Dallas Mavericks. But if they win now, they're in a position where they're going to be right back in it again next year. They've clearly demonstrated that with Jordan Poole coming along, especially with the Splash Brothers, and Draymond still stuffing the stat sheet, and then like Andrew Wiggins being a tertiary character that can do this every once in a while, 
they're not going anywhere. So I think they were already like that first run was dynasty status, but this just cements like of the 2010s, the Golden State Warriors will be that team. And now into the 2020s have their opportunity at that, but it'll be the better part of a decade that will have been stamped by this team's dominance, even in an era where LeBron James is the namesake of the league. Yeah, and listen, we just talked about Kevon Looney. Like, we were supposed to be talking about Kaminga in this spot. Like, they made some draft picks that to, to shore up these pieces that you would think would have been moved. And also during the trade deadline, everyone was expecting these pieces to get moved so you can go get a Dame Lillard or somebody. And I think now they still have that option at the end of the season because all they're doing is adding value to all these picks. And it's just a, a matter of, of, of um, experience and time and, and body language and muscle memory. We talk about muscle memory when it comes to the playoffs a lot. Uh, Shouts out to Lee, uh, Legion Hoops who posted <laughs> yesterday that Draymond is above Dirk Nowinski and Michael Jordan in playoff threes. Like that's just a, a a result of being there too much. Yes, that's a that's a volume stat. <laughs> right, exactly, and that's what I think all this is. Like the Warriors heading to the finals again is just another result of a volume stat where Steph Curry usually would falter at this point in time in the playoffs because he just had too much wear and tear on his body. But guess what? At the beginning of this playoffs, my man was coming off the bench. I, I think they got some legs under him. It has been a playoff run a little more akin to their partners on the other side in the Eastern Conference. Before we get to the Heat, I'll leave you with this. This was just funny and emblematic of like what a time it's been for Andrew Wiggins and how much, to your point, it's helped maybe take at times some of the you know Heat off Steph Curry. According to StatMuse, highest plus minus by a Warriors player in this series. Steph Curry at plus 57, Andrew Wiggins plus 66. Like, I know plus minus is not a perfect stat, but it's just sort of hilarious to see. And they mention it on the broadcast. Steve Kerr plays a deep bench throughout the entirety of the season. They give these guys opportunities within this system to thrive. It is still predicated on Steph being able to do things and hit shots that no other player in the history of the NBA has been able to on a consistent basis and when he does that that's when they touch the heights that they used to have but the rest of these guys coming along has been why Golden State's been probably outside of maybe the Miami Heat the best program building team in the NBA Ooh, that there is because like Brandon that. we we do have to talk about the Miami Heat. Game three in the Eastern Conference Finals was as ugly as I can remember a basketball game in a while. Everybody got hurt. Everybody was on the ground. You had Marcus Smart leave that game for a little bit with an uh, ankle injury. Jason Tatum leave for a bit with a shoulder stinger. You had, um, on the other side, Jimmy Butler actually leave for the rest of the game at halftime after you know all the wailing about John Morant's knee getting grabbed. Jimmy Butler kind of got pulled down by the knee in that game and aggravated something that had been going on with him there so that was the worst part of what we saw over the weekend because that season that series feels like it's gonna finish lesser than because some of your stars are in jeopardy in this game and that always sucks but I know everyone down in Miami has been belching fire saying the national media is not respecting that team enough (laughs) we'll put our hands up and say I, I this series I picked the I, I think I picked the Celtics to win in seven and it's become yes. a lot tougher to call without knowing if Jimmy Butler is going to be available coming up tonight who are, you know who's going to be available on the Boston side of things as well but I will say 
Golden State Warriors, excuse me. God, I'm already naming a different now, team. Hey, hey, hey. You Freudian, said it right. Freudian slip. The Miami Heat deserve everyone's respect because how they've been able to do this, like just an amoeba of a basketball team that has different guys hurt all year long and somehow finds a way to do all this, it's it's insane. And what they managed to do in this last game where Tyler Hero was basically unplayable by the end of the game. He was missing yep. so many shots. You didn't have Jimmy Butler in there. And so now all of a sudden, step right up, Mr. Heat himself in the middle, Bam Adebayo, decides to go and have the game of his life as a guy who, when he came there as a rookie, I, I remember some, like someone saying, and I thought it was super true, Bam Adebayo is Exactly. Like for all we talk about Jimmy, Bam on a bio is what the Miami Heat are about. Like come in mm. a little bit, you know, less heralded than maybe some of your counterparts coming out of college, but fit seamlessly into what the Heat want. Super versatile big man who just understands and very much embodies like what they want, you know, thought he should have been in the defensive player of the year conversation, all these things that make him so quintessentially Miami Heat. So for him to just be able to morph into what this team needed at that moment is another example of just, again, the program building that has gone on there under Pat Riley and Eric Spolstra. 100% agree, but don't you, don't you, don't you wish, uh, wouldn't you say that the reason why everyone's slow to put any faith into the heat culture that everyone in, in Miami has already adopted and uh, the likes of Joy Taylor, the, the satellite uh, fans as well. I th- it's because as soon as you believe in a team, like some did for this Dallas Mavericks team on the West, they show their ass a little bit. As soon as you buy in to this thing that doesn't seem like it just quite fit this square peg in a round hole. You're like, you know what? Let me stop bringing my my preconceived notions to – let me ignore the fact that Victor Oladipo didn't score any points but locked up Jason Tatum and Jalen and Jalen Brown. Like, let me let me, let me me throw all my uh, conventional wisdom uh, with the NBA and playoffs out the window and buy into this team, and that's when they get swept. Quite honestly, and I think, and I think because of the up and down nature of this the, of this series, and you said it was a, it was a bad game, but it really did be, become a game in the fourth quarter and in the third quarter. It was oh one yeah, of things like, oh, no, this is why you don't turn these games off. Yeah, that's why you don't turn these things off because they well, become competitive at any point in time. They but, became competitive because Jimmy Butler was out the entire second oh, half. Like, yes, okay, okay. Yeah. No, that was right, that's right. I, that, I don't that to me is a big part of it, Brandon and. I think the reason that we're all, myself included at times, hesitant to include the Heat in these conversations is because they don't have a defined superstar. Like, Jimmy Butler has always been a very, like, great player, but he's never been a superstar. He's playing like one in this postseason run. We talked about him having more 45-5 and games than any player in Heat postseason history. So all of those things mimic a superstar. It's just... He hasn't been there for us in a long time. And so we look at that team and we look at how we perceive the modern NBA and we say, well, that shouldn't happen. You know, like it it shouldn't work that way. A team that's just built on making it a rock fight, having guys like Max Struess or Tyler Hero decide to go off on a given night, having Bam Adebayo be a Swiss Army knife, like 
all of those things are a lot harder for us to call on the outside 30,000 foot view than, well, this team's got guy two, super, two max contract guys. This team's got two dudes that we saw force their way out of a place. Like Those are mm. easier for us to digest as True. a general NBA culture than having to sit down and say, all right, these are the things basketball-wise the Miami Heat do well that actually put them in position to win this often in this many different ways because they've had to win all those different ways. Like Again, you don't rise to the occasion you fall to the level of your training the heat have been hurt all year they've had main players out for them all year and had to make chicken salad out of chicken shit at times and so when jimmy butler goes down they don't really blink rightfully so but isn't it i'll also say this this is one of the reasons why i can't give the heat the credit i think they deserve is because this boston celtics team isn't consistent enough to give the heat credit for beating like what, what team part, are they beating? Part part of that should be credited to the Heat. Like they're oh. like we just saw this Boston team in the last series look like world beaters. We saw this Boston team in the first round take uh, early but, in the playoffs take out the Brooklyn Nets. Like yes, okay, they have been. But here's here's a little quick stat: the Celtics had two steals in Game Three, while Victor Oladipo had four. By himself. Yeah, which so, again so, is so, 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 a testament so, to the Heat. That's a testament to the Heat. The fact that the fact that the Celtics aren't even poking at balls. Yeah, the fact that the Heat are running competent enough. All, like, listen, you can chicken and the egg that however you want. The Boston Celtics sure. came into this series having beaten the Brooklyn Nets, who I understand were not the team that we thought they would be in a lot of at ways all. by this point, and then defeating the defending NBA champs in seven games. That's a damn good basketball team. That's the yes. basketball team I picked to win all this. And they have gotten out-toughed by the Miami Heat at every turn. They turn this into a football game, and the Miami Heat have won that football game so far. And you and I stood up here at the beginning of the playoffs and talked about how much we love this physical style. And so I am going to sit here and properly love up on this Miami Heat that's gone out and managed to win that way. Yes. Okay. Okay. I, I hear you. It's just something has to change. One of the at, at some point in time, they have to behave like a normal basketball team and uh, give us something that we expect to see. And not it's not just at the end of the game, like something that we can digest. Because I feel like it's it's just it's too it's too up and down. It's too all over the place. You never know who's going to be out who's going to be out there. But you know, such is the playoffs in in general. But I just I just wish I could sink my teeth in them and know what I was chewing. And that's sure. the issue. I don't know what I'm looking at. Well, Brandon, you're, I'm sure, one of the people that relished in the stat that the Elias Sports Bureau put out, that the Heat have won just two quarters in this series, the third quarter of game one and the first of game three. And only uh, Miami's the first team in NBA history to win just two quarters in the first three games and have a series lead, which is hilarious to me because if you win those quarters by a combined 46 points, of course it's going to obscure how the rest of the quarters in the game go. And of course it's going to obscure game flow. Like, I, I, I don't pretend to know as much about predictive NBA stats and which things actually correlate to wins and which don't. And I've seen some people saying that this is technically a, cor- a stat that correlates. But at the same time, like, we know how teams operate when they are up by big points. We know what that can do at times to the effort and middle points. But the fact that you start strong in the beginning of a game or start strong coming out of the halftime locker room are like tenants of sports that 
tend to be successful regardless of whether you're wearing helmets, throwing balls, or picking up a stick. So I I tend to look at those and say like, yeah, them winning a quarter, but winning it massively and at a critical juncture probably still matters more than we want to give credit for when those kind of stats come out. Yeah, and also you got to just give – you got to give them credit for being exactly where, you know, where you would see a LeBron James team uh, back in the finals, uh, Eastern Conference finals yet again. Like, yeah, you got to you got to give them a credit of beating the teams that were in front of them and doing it the way they can. Like you said, Bam Adebayo, he came out of nowhere and and led that team to victory. And if we can continue to get games where people that haven't shown up show up, like Kyle Lowry, for example, came off the bench and made a bunch of questionable calls offensively, but was everything they needed to for him to be when it comes to not taking shots. Like he was just he was just uh, the piece that they needed outside of him pulling up from three, which he loves to do so much. Which and again, doing it like the most heat way possible. Like Kyle Lowry was going into the locker room during his breaks in that game, working out his hamstring, getting back out there. All of it speaks to, I think, the main point I come back to. Because what we are in right now is a bit of a transition period in the NBA, right? True. Like, we joked about LeBron James not being in this postseason as kind of a marker. But you look around, and it's a lot of LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard, the names that we have been used to dominating for a while, being supplanted by the Luka Doncic's of the world. Certainly Giannis and the defending champ Bucks being in there to a certain extent. But now you get up to this point... And what have we seen in a playoffs where maybe you don't have as many fully formed monsters of a product yet because some of these superstars are still so young? Teams with known identities are being able to shine and work their way through right now. And the Golden State Warriors and the Miami Heat have very clear identities under this leadership when it comes to their head coach, the people that run the franchise in these front offices, the star players that they have employed to be at the front of those locker rooms. And when all else fails, when you've got that alone, that identity to lean back on that's been so deeply ingrained in how those teams operate, it gives you something to fall back on when Series become physical and your stars start to get nicked up a little bit. Things start to change. Calls don't go your way. You have to weather a 40-point outing from someone else's team. And I think we've really seen that become the case in this postseason so far. So, again, I'm going to stick tentatively by my Celtics and 7 pick right now. So much of this is going to depend on health for these teams that it feels like a crapshoot in the East. The West, now the Golden State Warriors, are going to have an ungodly amount of rest leading up to this because... I don't imagine they're going to make the same mistake twice when it comes to playing with their food at the end of this series. We'll see. I have been extremely fadeable during this NBA postseason. But before we get to any more on that, what do you got, Brandon? I said, I know we're we're closing out NBA, so I just want to bring it back. You know, I do that to the Luka Dunk. And I'm going to tell you exactly why I wasn't that impressed with Luka. I'm calling it the Luka Dunk with the Andrew Wiggins Dunk is because, thanks to social media, uh, Jalen, Jacoby, and Monica McNutt were on the sideline reviewing the best NBA playoff dunks. It was a nice three-minute rip of the likes of Scottie Pippen dunking on Patrick Ewing and all the big all the big dunks in the playoffs that we've seen in the past. They, you know, John Morant posters and things like that from earlier on in his career. I've seen too many amazing playoff dunks in this one. This one just looks like a. This one looks like you know 
one one that re- got registered on a Sunday night. You know, when it when it when it when the game was already in, in when the game was already kind of put away. So it it, it I, I I took it with a grain of salt. Brandon, I just hope your kids, your beautiful boys that are asleep <laughs> right now, don't grow up with this level of hater inside them where you take a beautiful moment like this and you try and just squash it because it might not live up to historically something that you've put rose-colored glasses all over at this point. Brandon, the only thing that dunk registered on was the Richter scale. That dunk was so powerful that if Andrew Wiggins decides to endorse crypto tomorrow, I will begin investing in it. Like, move over Steph Curry and your weird ads on TV. If you throw so Andrew weird. Wiggins on there, I'm getting a crypto wallet. I'll figure out what how much Dogecoin I am going to lock up tomorrow if Captain Andrew Wiggins decides he wants to go that route because he has my sword and my shield at this point. The Gohan of the NBA is the man that I will follow into battle gladly. Hater. Hating ass Brandon. Uh, all right. Speaking of moments that registered over the weekend... Dear God in heaven, what an epic meltdown that we saw, unfortunately, in Oklahoma. It was absolutely gut-wrenching. Mito Pereira, the 27-year-old Chilean, was leading, started the day at 9-under, found his way all the way back to the group at 6, and before we got to the Will Zalatoris and Justin Thomas playoff, where Justin Thomas ultimately hoisted the Wanamaker Trophy and won the 2022 PGA Championship, we had to endure the 18th hole from hell for Pereira. And to get into everything we saw there, we'll take a break and we will talk to our friend Peter Burns, who is covering the tournament this weekend and has a lot of great insight on just what was going through the mind of of Mito Pereira in that moment. The NBA playoff action is nonstop at DraftKings Sportsbook an official sports betting partner of the NBA. This week, new customers can bet just $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets if they do. Looking to turn a small bet into a big payday during the NBA playoffs? Well, with DraftKings Same Game Parlays, you can do just that. Create your own parlay by combining multiple bets like which team will win, total threes made, total rebounds, and more, and then boom, you have a shot and an even bigger payout. Right now, all customers can place a same-game parlay with three or more legs and get a free bet back, up to $25 if one leg doesn't hit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code GOJO and bet $5 on any NBA team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. That's promo code GOJO, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. All right, super exciting weekend in sports. And honestly, once I saw the playoff pairing in the PGA Championship was SEC versus ACC, I knew there was only one man for the job here. Peter Burns, SEC Network host, was part of the ESPN Plus feature group coverage of the PGA Championship this weekend. Peter, uh, how was yet another moment in the sun for the SEC in the playoffs? It just means more. Um, Alyssa, I didn't even know who I was on with. Like, you, you kind of, like, I kind of worried when you first came on and I'm seeing, like, the new sexy skinny Gojo where I was just, like, like I almost wanted to ask, like, are you okay? Like, are you <laughs> are you being treated well in captivity? Like, blink twice if uh, the hostage, uh, you know, negotiators are in the room, man. Looking, uh, 
Looking good, dude. Looking, uh, looking, looking solid here in the new gig, man. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm, I'm trying, man. You know what it is? Is the first week of the podcast, I had Katie Nolan come on here, who we both know, and immediately she starts thirsting after my father, talking about how great he looks now, the salt and pepper and the beard and hair. And so between that and all the weight he's lost, I have like extra pressure to try and keep my body as a thirty-something in the place that can compete with my almost sixty-year-old father. Listen, man, uh, dad bods are somewhat undefeated at this point, but uh, no, you're rocking it, dude. I'm, I'm, uh, I was happy when you texted me. I was like, you know, it's one of those moments when you see great sporting events, you want to talk to your buddies about it. And you get all these like group texts that are going on and everybody kind of talking shit to each other and stuff. And it was, uh, man, it was, it was great. I mean, as the second year, I got the, you know, I, I say honor because I'm, you know, I'm a former college golfer but I never was around calling golf ever in my life. So a couple of years ago, I called SEC men's and women's golf championships and never thought it would, you know, kind of lead to anything other than, you know, having some fun and get an opportunity to go play some golf during the middle of the season. And <laughs> ESPN caught up the rights for it. And so I did last year at Kiowa and they, you know, didn't puke over myself too bad where they invited me back this year. And it was, I mean, what a tournament. I mean, Zalatoris from Wake, of course, and then to see JT and the way that they played in the playoff. I mean, it was Damn, that was that was that was drama, and then you had to like the Jean Vandeveld deal with Mito Pereira at the end as well. Crazy. Yeah, I, and I feel like that's where we got to start because obviously we'll get to JT actually winning this. You know, all the things that had to go into that moment. But you just mentioned it. You're a college golfer. You you still love golf and are playing it all the time. I see your Instagram. They're incredible, breathtaking trips. But you played a lot more than me, so you're more familiar with what we saw from Mito Pereira in that moment on 18 the drive that went right into the water and really damned him. Walk me through what it was like for you just watching with your background, trying to process that moment. So it's two things. And I'm glad you asked me about it because it's one, like if, if you've never been there before, you're going to look at it and go, all right, this is somebody kind of puking on themselves in the final stage, right? This is, this is an epic quote unquote choke job. But what people don't understand is how hard that golf hole is, right? Like, unless you play a lot of golf, and I got an opportunity under the guise of doing some show prep. I went up there to Southern Hills and got a chance to tee it up a couple months ago. And I'm looking at 18 going, you got to be effing kidding me. Like, this is, you know, this course is hard enough as it is, but 480 yards, dog leg right rough you got water i'm like this is a hard enough hole and i'm playing for like 20 bucks much less having you know legacies on the line and you know like with anything there's a certain demeanor about golfers i've lucky been lucky enough to be in that position a couple of times to where you get up on 18 and you're one of two things one you're so far in the zone that you're just like buddy let's go i there's no, i don't not feeling anything and we saw that from jt in the playoff and then you see it when that putt didn't go in for Pereira on 17, and I mean, dude, we're talking that close. That close, he's got a two-stroke lead, and you can't screw that up. Because if that putt falls, he's probably taking hybrid or three-wood off the tee, hitting it way left. Instead, he goes, all right, I don't want to put myself to where I'm going to make a bogey. And then he puts just kind of a, a little bit of a quick move on it. And it, it was tough to see. I mean, it's it's not Jean Vandeveld, the way he lost the Open Championship years ago when all he needed was like a double and he made triple. But it, it was tough. But kudos also to Mito for sacking up and doing the interview post game, right? Like after the tournament, he sat there with Amanda Bellinois and, 
you know, he answered the bell. I'm like, nobody should ever decline a post, you know, game or, or competition interview if that bro just had his dreams and hopes crushed and, and still did a post-match interview. It, it really was overwhelming honesty there. It was super impressive. But, Peter, the other thing I, I saw, you mentioned the conversation around all this from so many people, and I think I heard it on the broadcast, certainly on Twitter, was – People talking about what his caddy should or shouldn't have done in that moment. Where are you on what that's supposed to be? Because a lot of people were saying caddy's got to slow him down, tell him to club down in that instance and play a safer shot. Yeah, I mean, it's a great it's a great question. Kind of it's inside golf because, again, a lot of people are going to be like, oh, why didn't the caddy tell him not to do that? Well, you know, you got to realize the guys on tour for the caddies, I would say 70 to 80% of the guys there, they're there just to be that, okay, kind of hype man, right? The guy that's, you know, all right, yeah, like you're going to do this. You, you got this. And it's more of like a, hey, if, if your player takes driver out of the bag, the last thing you want to do on a major is put one seed of doubt in mm -hmm. his mind. So, you know, and, and yeah. he had played so well at that point. So you're thinking, all right, if he's going driver, they obviously had talked about this. This wasn't like, Tin cup, you're like, what the hell are you doing, McAvoy? Like, uh, relax. Like, I've never seen this play. No, I think it was just more of a, an idea of like, hey, we're gonna hit driver, we're gonna hit it left. I'm gonna have this like hold off fade to it, and and just got a little bit quick. So again, it's one of those situations, Gojo, where it's like it's easy for you and me and the Twitter verse with the you know the nameless trolls on there to be like, ah, from my couch, it looks like this is an easy play. No, man, it was. It was tough, and I, I felt bad, and I just – I wanted him – you know, I don't think it's going to sting him in the moment now, but, you know, seeing, you know, his, his buddy that was right there with him, watching him play come in, like – because you never know if you're in golf ever going to get that opportunity again. You know, like certain, certain teams, you're like, all right, well, they'll be back, or certain players have already won one major, but, like, that may be as good as it gets, and people will talk about that finish, uh, honestly, forever. Yeah, well, I, I think that's right. Like, proper context for anyone that's not aware, Pereira is a 27-year-old PGA Tour rookie who had the chance to maybe win a major as a PGA Tour rookie for the first time. I think it was uh, Keegan Bradley, 2011. Yeah, 2011, yeah. So, like, that's everything that was on the line in that moment. And you're right, like, that's what... That's what made it sting even more is we hear this from so many people. You hear this from quarterbacks in the NFL who get there earlier in their career and get to a Super Bowl and think it's going to be like this all the time. You know nothing's guaranteed in that spot. Like, I, I don't know, Peter, you're always a great person to have these like broader strokes conversations with. Like, where this ranks, I mean, because this weekend we had so much going on. We had a Formula One race where the favorite and the leader in the race had his car short because of how hot it was in Spain. We had actual relegation in Premier League soccer where a team is sent down into Sodom and Gomorrah with everyone outside of the big money players in that league. And then this, like where does a late round collapse of this magnitude kind of rank in the all-time bad sports moments? You know, it, it's interesting because I think the fact that it's it's Mito, unless he goes on this incredible tear, it will be kind of a cliff note, mostly because it'll be Justin Thomas's second victory. You know, had it happened to JT or had it happened to a big time name, I think that's something that lives in lore a little bit longer. Um, and I mean, we, the reason why we know Vanderbilt from you know, the mid 90s is it, it, it was so spectacular. It'll probably never be, you know, uh, looked at or, or topped again. But I, I mean, I think that if we're talking to him three years from now, we won't remember. We'll remember the guy that that lost it and hitting double. We'll remember JT 
you know, driving the 17th green in the playoff. That that's what they'll remember going forward. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that's like a sports scar, right? Like, you know, you know guys remember you know, the good wins and you don't really see that for golf because it's such an individual sport, but you, you think about that. I mean, for you, do you remember the wins or do you remember the losses more at Notre oh, Dame? Peter, I, I not only remember like the team losses, I remember individual sacks that I gave up vividly. <laughs> and unfortunately, right. there were a few more of them that I would have liked. But yeah, that's the that's the mentality where we are way more hardwired to remember. I, like, I met a friend of mine's wife and I heard her last name and I went, oh my God, I gave up a sack to your brother against BYU in 2012. Like that is how deeply ingrained it is. So you're absolutely right. You're like, we were running cover two. Like I didn't, like, I mean, like, again, you'll probably understand like all the plays and that, and that's funny. And I started thinking about that when you and I were kind of texting back and forth and I go, you know, for, for a golfer, what Pereira went through is almost like Georgia in second and 26 against Alabama, yeah. right? You hadn't been there really in a long, long time or ever really. And you had that opportunity. You're looking at it. You're like, this game is won, right? Like, I'm mean, like, it, it's done. All I got to do is basically I can bogey 18 and I'm going to be a PGA champion, a major championship uh, winner. And all of a sudden, poof, like one play like five seconds, everything turns upside down. You're like, what the hell happened? Like Georgia Bulldogs, the players and Kirby and those guys, they didn't realize until days and months, years later about how close they were. I think that's a, it's a very similar thing to Mito. And, and hopefully for him, it's a situation where it's just like Georgia that he gets that opportunity and finally punches through and, and he kind of learns from it right now. But it's, it's tough, man. Tony Finau has been in that same situation. He's such a likable guy. But it, it eats at you when you can't cut through because everyone's going to call you a great player until you win a major. And, and it'll eat at Will Zalatoris as well, too, that, that he wasn't able to win that thing in the playoff as well. So what you're saying is what Pereira really needs is Stetson Bennett the fourth on his bag for the next time go around here. That seems the to be mailman, the baby, right? the, the mailman or 95 draft picks uh, on defense. Yeah. Is, either or uh, like every club in his bag, just having a rocket launcher strapped to it. So, so speaking of just rocket launching stuff, right? Like my wife who I love and she's a hundred times better looking and smarter and everything uh, more important than me. Can't, can't confirm. She, yes. You know, you've met her. And she always tells me, like, put your phone up at 10 p.m. Like, there's no reason to check your phone. Like, there's the emails have been answered. There's no text you need to answer. It's social media. There's nothing that's going to, you know, get you hired. There's a lot of stuff that will get you fired after 10 p.m., but there's nothing going to get you hired, right? So the night before the PJ Championship, I'm sitting there. It's 10 p.m. I'm getting ready to go to bed. I've done all this show prep. I was a little nervous. It's, you know, getting kind of amped up for the tournament. And I see Nick Saban start going off. And I'm like, oh, oh, dude, I'm like, I'm trying to get a good night's sleep. And then, you know, the next thing you know, man, I'm sitting there like tweeting like Tupac and Biggie memes, like just I'm like, what am I doing? I'm 43 years old. Like, this is, you know, me like I can't like the troll in me had to come out. go And so that happens. And I'm like, oh, that's crazy. It's like 1 a.m. I finally shut it down. And. I'm doing the broadcast the first day, and we've got like Xander Shoffley um, and I can't remember who else, Tony Finau and some great players. And I'm like, all right, this is uh, this is going well. I'm, I feel like the broadcast is going well. And I checked Twitter to make sure I didn't like, you know, send out any F-bombs or anything like that or anybody was too upset with my, you know, broadcasting. 
And I see Jimbo Fisher decides to call a press conference. I was like, no, no. I was like, so now I'm sitting here like trying to broadcast and I've got like one headphone right here, like trying to listen to damn Jimbo just go scorched earth on this and trying to call the PGA championship. Like it was just, it was, I, I got to be honest, it's everything I ever wanted. To be. I was going to say, I can't think of a better convergence of things that Peter Burns loves than the height of SEC melodrama amongst coaches and PGA golf. Golf, you know, golf, uh, SEC shit talking. Like, it was everything that I could have, like, all melded in. And I'm like, I'm on the clock for this. This is amazing. And, you know, and, and I'm sitting there getting text from coaches like, hey, can I buy a ticket to SEC spring meetings? And like, and then I get another co- a text from an SEC coach. It's like, um, you think spring meetings next week are going to be fun? Dot dot dot. I mean, again, it got it, when you get the coaches fired up, like in the off, like you know, they kind of know that they'll they'll jab at each other, but it's like that non-dominant, you know, jab, just enough to water your eyes a little bit that they'll deliver. But you know, Jimbo's coming out throwing haymakers, and I'm like, oh, buddy, this is. Um, it just means more, buddy. It's it, it, giddy up. It's gonna be is, some fun. So. Is this the most excited you've ever been to go to Destin? Um, yeah, to Destin because it's kind of a snore fest majority of the time. And I said the reason why because we've got the media days, which by the way, I'm trying to get them to move it to prime time. I, I still think yes. that why we don't do SEC media nights is beyond me. But um, spring meetings are more kind of like, all right, here's a bylaw 14.73 on the two coaches behind the 20 yard line and how, you know, like nobody really says anything to each other, but between this drama and then, you know, the kind of pay for play thing that's going on and, and, you know, do people get rid of divisions in, in football? This will be the first time I think the spring meetings are actually really interesting. And, you know, and, and then, of course, when media days come around, it's just it's just chaos coming into this season because everybody's sniping at each other right now. And I, you know, I, I kind of hate it for the sport, but I kind of love it as well, too. What, what part of you hates it? Um, just the kind of traditionalist in me to think that, hey, you know, when, you know, you're growing up in the 90s and, and 80s and watching football, you kind of felt, hey, man. Occasionally you can have a good, you know, I, I grew up an LSU fan, but yeah. more baseball, basketball, because football, we weren't worth a damn, right? We're going through Jerry DiNardo days and Mike Archer. And you're like, yeah. man, if we could one day make a sugar bowl, that would be awesome. You know, these are, these are pre, you know, pre Nick Saban era days. And, um, and you felt like, Hey, kind of everybody, you, if you've got a good run, you can win eight or nine games. And that was important. And I feel like, I don't know if it's a college football playoff because I do like aspects of that. It, it just, it just feels dirty, right? I mean, I'm sitting there one day thinking, weird way, Bryce Young hurt himself by not putting himself in the portal, right? Like he's a Heisman Trophy winner, probably already making a million dollars, and he hurts himself as far as financially because I guarantee you, had he gone into the portal, there probably would have been somebody that would have made an offer of five to six million dollars to keep up, to get him on his team in this great area that the NCAA is at right now. Now, he probably wouldn't have taken it, but I guarantee it might have all of a sudden raised some eyebrows that Alabama's like, well, we need to kick in a little bit more for the NIL. You've earned it. And and the fact that I'm even having these conversations, Gojo, it, 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 it hurts me. It, it hurts again. Yeah, and, and Peter, you know what I think is interesting about that is that point in particular is something that I felt myself starting to push back on a little more and more. Not the notion that he could certainly – you know, force Alabama to pony up with more, but the notion that that's like a, 
a true threat that we're going to see right away for a lot of these guys. Just because in football, like I know we saw it in basketball with what went on in Miami. We're dude, but basketball to me feels like a different animal in that sport just because of how outsized the impact one player has on the game. I know Bryce Young's already got a Heisman to his name, but he plays a sport that's far more dependent at a place in Alabama where like, I think as a player in football especially, your evaluation of where the money fits in with the coaching could even apply to Jordan Addison who just left Pitt for USC. People are going to make that about money, but I'd also look and say he was going to go back and potentially face a new offensive coordinator, new wide receiver coach, new quarterback at Pitt. And so he looked at the coaching that he could also get, the quarterback that he'd have in the coordinator, and said that's as much a football decision as anything else. And I still feel like those things are going to be important and the Alabamas and Georgias and these high-profile places that churn out pros are still going to have an edge for that reason. Yeah, I mean, because then, you know, you can sit there and Nick Saban, and you know how it is, every single college um, football room, when you walk in, the first thing you do is, here's how many NFL guys we have in the league. Here's how many real checks that people are getting. Like, how do I develop you as a player? And and, and Saban's always been at the forefront of that, going, listen, you know, winning the championships is the byproduct of having these guys have a whole lot of success. And I don't think that's a bullshit line from him. Like, I think that he truly enjoys seeing draft day come by in in, in developing those guys so yeah i mean but just in the just in the idea that it it could be an option for those it's i look at it and go who does it really who is it truly hurt because i started thinking about it gojo and you're you're great to talk about about this is that all of a sudden i'm thinking well in the current status right now what how many contenders do we have in college football Six, seven. I'd say in a given year, six, six feels like a good number in a given year with like the rotating back two or three of that. Right. Okay. Well, all of a sudden, since this, you know, NIL kind of pay for play thing, this gray area has popped up. I'm, ser- I'm I hear of USC making some moves. I, Miami is, is making moves. I mean, you know, Oregon, of course, and you see Texas all of a sudden, you know, and, and so I start looking at it and going, well, wait a minute, like, you know, are we going to have more teams that are at least quote unquote willing to kind of pony up and play this deal? And and I and, and I get it. If you're saving, you're like, listen, I've built ten years of of foundation into this. We've got a half a billion dollars of facilities, my coaching staff, my track record, all of this, and I'm going to lose because some guy got offered seventy five thousand dollars more. You know, it, it's it's like, well, wait a minute. How can this guy cut to the front of the line when I built all this stuff? So, um, and I, I think the only reason why Saban went in on it, not necessarily to call out Jimbo and Dion, which he did, but I think he's been saying the same thing and nothing's been really done about it, nor has anybody really, you know, it makes a headline for like half a day and then it's down off of the front line. But by him calling out Jimbo in particular, I think this was his way to have everybody go, all right, like, let's really dive into this. And sadly, I, I mean, hell, I don't think, you think the NCAA is going to do anything about it? No, I want, and I think like, were you on that side of he wants to see something done about this or what a lot of people were pointing out was in a room full of a lot of local business owners and the boosters and the people that might potentially hear that, that he's sort of sounding the alarms and saying, we do need to pony up a little more if this is how our enemies are going to try and respond to what we've done. 
I think that's the brilliance in Saban, and maybe I'm giving them way too much credit, but I think it's both. I think it's a no-lose situation for them, right? It's it's like, hey, listen, if we get the green light, are you guys ready to roll? Because I'm ready to roll. And, you know, when Saban says something at the University of Alabama, it it goes, right? I mean, it, and, and on the flip side of it, I think that he was kind of seeing like, hey, are, are, are we got any traffic cops out here, or can we all drive 175 in the Autobahn? Like, you tell me. And I, I think that's the frustration for the coaches. They just want to know what the rules are. Like they feel like they've just showed up and everybody's like, it's like cannonball run back in the day. Like, ah, there's not really any rules and you know, it's already a gray area right now. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to lead to some fun times. It is true because we've seen like, I mean, Dabo's commented on this before, which gets the rounds because Dabo's comments always tend to get, you know, sound media alarms, but we've had, you know, Gene Smith at Ohio state. We've had plenty of people bring this up and it's almost like they went, all right, time to bring in lefty. Like, Let's go ahead and break glass on Saban and really rattle this thing. Yeah, and I think, you know, and and I, I think it's all kind of – I think everybody just wants a solution or a resolution is probably the best way of putting it. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this, but, you know, I, I, I realize my limitations of how smart I am. And so sometimes I'll say stuff or a lot of times I say stuff on air and then it's not until somebody else says it that <laughs> I'm like, oh, actually I said something fairly smart. <laughs> And so a couple of weeks ago, I floated the idea. I'm like, why are we not looking at the college football playoff to run all of college football? Like, why don't we reverse engineer this? They already have the playoff. They, they declare the champion. Why not just have Bill Hancock and his whole crew take over all of regular season football? Like the NCAA gives it a guidebook, but they don't run it. The NCAA has never crowned a champion in Division One football. That's like the greatest trivia question ever. If you want to stump your, your, your buddies at a bar, be like, what's the one sport that NCAA has never declared a champion? It's D1 football, right? They do it in JUCO. They do it in D2, but it's always been a writer's poll or the BCS and the college football playoff. And so when I saw Gene Smith and others start talking about, well, maybe it's the college football playoff. I'm like, oh, I just lucking backed into a deal right now. Cause I think that's what it's going to happen. And I don't know how it looks like. I mean, I, if I'm Greg Sankey, I, I, I think that's the next role I would want to take is, hey, I'm, I'm the, the, the head guy that runs the regular season of football. And I'm too close to it, though. Gojo, would you trust Sankey? You know, well, you don't have any kind of vested interest in it. Do you, you trust him if he was the guy that ran it for all of D1 football? I, I think you'd have a hard time selling other people. Like, I would trust Greg Sankey because at this point, I look at who are the two elder statesmen in the room making college football's decisions right now. It's Greg Sankey and it's Jack Swarbrick at Notre Dame. Everyone else of the conference commissioners are all relatively new in this. I mean, hell, Kevin Warren is the elder statesman of the Alliance's conference commissioners at this point. So just by tenure, it would put them in there. But I think you'd have a hard time. We already saw what happened with Texas and Oklahoma brought resistance to the playoff expansion conversation because they felt it benefited an SEC who wasn't fully honest with them. However you feel about that, that was their perception. So I feel like we'd have a hard time getting Sankey into that role based off just what happened there recently. I, yeah, I say that. I, I, you say that, but I'll, I'll counter with the fact that I think that those guys that are smart enough in the room that would be a part of this quote-unquote you know, college football playoff, uh, whatever you call it, division or whatever you want to federation, I think they understand that that Sankey can wear several hats. They they say they don't trust Sankey, but I think that was all them also doing what's best for their respective conferences as well, too. That I think that there would be enough trust that if Sankey 
was to say, listen, I don't really care. I'm not the SEC. And I actually, I, this is no bullshit. I firmly do believe that if Sankey came in and said, I'm no longer the SEC commissioner, I am the commissioner for the game of college football. I, and maybe he's pulled the wool over my eyes, but I truly believe he's a guy of enough integrity that would sit there and go, I, okay, I, I can't make this decision because I've seen him do it. There's a lot of decisions I've seen behind the scenes over here yeah. in the SEC where I thought, well, this would be the easy play for him to decide this or whatnot. But the way he looks at things are a little bit different. And I think he would do that. And that's that's why he'd add my vote if he's the guy who does it all. But speaking of, of what he's done in certain situations, with this situation with Saban and Jindo, Jimbo, we saw the reprimands go out. Did you think that was enough? Yeah, I was mean, there any what, more that what, he could do, I guess, is my yeah, question. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think – I think that's like the first time that you get the warning in the HR file, which I've got like nine of them already uh, for bevy of different things. It's like, like we can't punish you for real until we at least get the first step. And the first step is a reprimand. I mean, just the fact that we're to this point and Nick Saban has more reprimands than Lane Kiffin blows my mind, Man. like blows my mind. And like, I mean, you know, Lane, I would love to see Lane Kiffin's drafts right now. Yes. Oh, I mean, that's what I want. Pe Give me, I mean, Peter, I don't even want the DMs. I just want to see the drafts. That's all yes. I want. What is Lane Kiffin sent to drafts? Because when even he is talking about being speechless, to that end, Peter, when we get to like media day or something, can you be the one that gets Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher with Lane Kiffin hosting the panel up there? I feel like it would end in a knife fight based on how much one hates the other in that group. But my God, you want to talk about SEC primetime, man. I mean, again, I would love to see it, but I, you know, I mean, I don't know if you saw it earlier this week, Lane was scheduled to go on the Dan Patrick show and he got the, um, that mm. would not be the smartest idea. And, and again, I, I think, listen, there's, um, there's a lot of family fighting that goes along in the SEC footprint. We'll just put it that way. And they just don't like to air out that dirty laundry. And I think Sankey had to pull the car over and it'd be like, I will pull this car over again one more time. If, if, and then it's, you know, Jimbo and, and Nick at the back end. And you can just see Lane throwing popcorn at him and, and Kirby's just like, you know, right behind Sankey going, ah, I mean, it was, it's great. And then who oh. the hell knows what Mike Leach would do? Like, oh, I mean, God. it's, oh, well, it reminds me of 1842 where, the Pirates of Somalia were coming. You know, I mean, he just had this like random thing. So, oh, man, uh, it really, it really is going to be a gem. It was. I will turn this bus around and end your precious field trip pretty damn quick. From all right, so, so this is the ADD mind, and I don't know which direction you want to go with this conversation, or if you're sick of me. But I started thinking about if you could, if you could have access to any one person's phone in sports right oh, now God. and you get the passwords you get the dms you get the twitter messages you get everything you get their contact list their emails like i, I got one in mind and it's not salacious right i think everybody yeah. kind of thinks of oh i'd like to see this and you know clip kingsbury's phone which probably would be fun but whatever probably a great time um but... is there one that comes up comes to mind to you let me hear yours first because i still got to think on this Mine, mine is actually not a player. It's not a coach. It's Jimmy Sexton, the super oh, agent. Yeah. Because Sexton, for those who don't know, he's he's the biggest agent. Pretty much every single college coach, a lot of NFL guys uh, use him as well too. He's the kingmaker, right? So you know, if there's jobs that are open, he's the one that says, "All right, 
this job's coming up in two years. Do you want this job? No. Okay. I can get you here. This coordinator's going to leave. This guy's about to be fired. This booster, like he, it's, it's his world. We're just living in his Jimmy Sexton's matrix. So to me, that would be number one, but it doesn't have to be college football either. Yeah. So is there well, one it, all access thing you'd want? I, I think to that end, and it's pro it's probably going to be one name over the other because my initial thought when you said Jimmy Sexton is, all right, let me go to his counterpart in a different sport and say Rich Paul. Like, okay, head yeah, of, head of clutch sports. But then I'm like, why wouldn't I just go for LeBron James, who we know is really so much, you know, we just heard from Kyrie Irving, who was on the I Am Athlete podcast, calling him the GM and all that. So why not go right to the source and get into the phone of the guy who people have thought more or less has run basketball for the last two decades? Yeah. And, and again, like how many times, like, I would love to know, you know, the conversations that he are in, like, you know, does he have like two separate group texts? Has he ever sent the, like the accidental one text to one group? Oh, he's for sure done that Peter and sent it to the guy who he was like going to text the other group about what I want to know is question, question mark. And then all of a sudden, like John Wall's like, um, me like uh, for real like, like you know well and but that no you just outlined the situation that I really want to know is not that but especially nowadays because LeBron's getting up there the Lakers are kind of the butt of a lot of jokes right now who's left LeBron James on red oh like who got the text and was just like no, and actually dusted him because we know that would never make it to the light of day and that's what I'd want to see who had the audacity to just give him the Heisman Jawan Howard just did Yes. I don't know if he's Jawan Howard basically was like, I mean, because you know, no one's going after Jawan Howard, head coach at Michigan, unless LeBron's already been like, all right, yeah, let's give it a go. And Jawan's like, like Jawan didn't even use this as leverage to get more money out of Michigan. No, right? that's like, how he you just know it's like, bad out there. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I'm coaching my kids now in. I don't know. I mean, LeBron is a is a good one. I feel like commissioners are almost kind of a cop out because obviously I'd love like I like Daniel Snyder's phone would be a good one. I I I almost was gonna say him. I would almost like his phone just so I could release the text to the media and finally end this whole thing. Like get us out of the cycle, get us to where this is all going, and just have it done faster. Well, that that's when I knew Snyder's day were done. When all of a sudden the stuff started leaked about the you know the yeah. the financial aspect, because you realize like you could pretty much get away with anything in the NFL world as long as it doesn't hurt your bottom line, mm-hmm. right? Like, and as soon as rumors are coming out that he was hurting the bottom line, that that's when the NFL it, it will go all in, right? I mean, the Kaepernick situation. Kaepernick hurt the NFL's bottom line. That's the reason why, for a bevy of reasons, that Kaepernick did not play, in my opinion, is because all of a sudden that was going to hurt the bottom line. It was a divisive issue. And and so you get all of a sudden, man, you can get pulled over. You can be accused of a lot of things. But if you hurt the actual bottom line of the NFL, you got to go. And, uh, yeah, my tough days for Snyder to say the least yeah no you can see the uh the shark starting to circle on that one there's other articles coming out about you know the other NFL owners and taking votes and it, it just it, it sounds very much like that's finally going to end and as you pointed out what a sad indictment of that league and you know the air quotes morality it tries to portray at times that it's taking this long for something like this to happen there. But you're right, Colin Kaepernick was shown the door in a much more expeditious fashion for doing something that was, you know, 
it was protest. It was not heinous in the way that we've seen the things here. Plus, I think also the league wants Snyder to sell, just like the way he wants. They, you know, they're glad that the Broncos and, and after yeah. you know Pat Boland's situation with the lawsuits after his passing, they want him to sell as well too, because it's no different than right now. And you're in the housing market, and you sell your house, the comps are going to go up. And when you see the next big time payday come in for a you know five billion dollar deal, all of a sudden you're going to get more stadiums built. I mean, it's it's all of this. I mean, again. They're the ultimate gangsters of gangsters. They're the yes. Corleone uh, of it. And, you know, the NFL is right there. And, um, you know, now the question is, and this is when it gets really crazy. It's the last thing I'll leave, we'll leave you with is what if all of a sudden it gets to the point, could the dollars and cents be so incredible in collegiate football if it broke away to where if you got rid of eligibility that you could have guys that decide, you know what? I play for a big enough brand. I live on a college campus and I'm going to make six, $7 million as a quarterback here. Like, could they ever see a situation? I mean, I'm just talking way outside of the, the box that they're like, I don't want to go play for Jacksonville. I don't want to go play for Detroit. Like, unless, unless I'm playing for this team, like not even think Eli Manning one or two picks down. I'm talking like, I've always dreamed about being a Dallas Cowboy. I know they're 24. I can go back to school next year. So right now I'm telling you, I want to be a Dallas Cowboy. I will sign with the Dallas Cowboys next year. I'm not signing with anybody else. So do not draft me. I think it would ever get to that point. I I want to see this. If we're going to get leverage, hell, let's get crazy. It's so true. Everything about the NFL operates on just a higher plane with too much going on. But uh, speaking of a higher plane, no one operates in more areas than Peter Burns, as you just heard over the course of the last 40 minutes. Peter, you've given us so much of your time. We really appreciate it, man. Check out Peter Burns on ESPN Radio, covering football on the SEC Network, and occasionally moonlighting as a golf play-by-play announcer. Peter, we'll catch up with you and fix college football and the rest of the sports world soon. Thanks, man. All right, awesome stuff from Peter Burns. No surprising that that conversation steadily veered into an area where we decided to try and fix basically all of college football. Peter is uh, a man who simply cannot help himself when he gets around a good sports talk radio debate, and that's why we love having him around here. So awesome stuff there. But Brandon, boy, oh boy, do we have a lot of stuff to get to today in this, that, and the third. So why don't we do it? Because like, how much stuff do we have to get to in this, that, and the third, Brandon? We don't even have time for me to sit here and gush about Connor McDavid and what went on Mm. this weekend. What that young man does, like we talked about this. I am not the biggest hockey fan in the world. You are not the biggest hockey fan in the world. We talked to Shayna Goldman on this show from the Too Many Men podcast, which you should go check out. She got us smarter with it. But I come and parachute into the NHL postseason every year. And this is the first year where Connor McDavid and the Oilers have gotten past the first round. And so we've gotten to see him in a setting like this in the second round. And sweet, merciful Jesus, if you have not spent much time around hockey and you want to know what it's supposed to look like, just watch this large lad out here. He is simultaneously the fastest skater on the ice, constantly in the most control, and seems just as content to absolutely drop dimes for his teammates as anything else. I think he's the playoff leader in points right now in the NHL currently, and has just been an absolute mutant. The battle for Alberta Alberta between them and Calgary has been an absolute cocaine rip of a series. It is so much fun. It is my drug of choice from here on out, so... If you haven't already tapped in on that series, for the love of God, make it your entry point, and I promise you will love hockey as much as 
anybody who covers that sport because it has been an absolute blast. Have you ever seen the movie Dumbo Drop, Operation Dumbo Drop? No, I've never even heard of that movie, actually. Operation Dumbo Drop? You got to see it. It's got Bill uh, Bill Murray in it. It's just uh, uh, basically uh, an African elephant has to get dropped, parachuted into his land because they couldn't drive him in. Anyways, that's me every NHL playoffs because I love just just – Floating down in, as you said, and, and checking things out. The the series in in Tampa Bay is all all that that's gone. Yeah. Florida Panthers, they're not competing. But to specifically talk about Connor McDavid and how much we you said we didn't know, really know about uh, hockey and we see things and things. Anyways, I didn't need to I didn't need to know Quidditch. I didn't need to know the game of Quidditch to know Harry Potter was killing that shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just saw the game, and I was like, ooh, who's that? Right? That's what Connor McDavid is doing. Like, he is clearly on some, like, the Harlem Globetrotter type shit. Like, you just, you just, you see him, he's moving different, he looks different, and he's moving so fast you can't even, you can't even check to see who exactly that is. Is that 97 out there? Like, he's, he's just that good. I just wanted to hop in and just say, that man is that man. It is fun. Like, you always joke, like, in fifth grade, there's always those kids that develop a little earlier than everyone else, and so they're, like, nice as hell at basketball or, like, they're yes. super overly physical in all those spots. That's Connor McDavid in a league full of the best hockey players on planet Earth. Yes. Like, it, it's it's truly remarkable to watch, and so this ended up becoming this, that, and the fourth today just so I could gush oh, yeah, about no, Connor no, no, no. McDavid. He is he has broken my brain, and again, that series is maybe the most fun I had in a weekend that touched them all in sports. So, in the interest of that, let's get to this, in this, that, and the third, Brandon, because we did have more sports this weekend. Um, everyone, if you just thought Formula One was going to stop getting talked about after the Miami Grand Prix, you were wrong. One, because we had the Spanish Grand Prix this weekend, and two, because Monaco is the next race coming up. And boy, oh boy, mm. if there is an archetype out there for why the United States wanted to get in on this, it is the wealth porn you are about to see in the Monaco Grand Prix. <laughs> but, Brandon, that being said, what we saw in the Spanish Grand Prix this weekend was pretty wild. Max Verstappen, no surprise to a lot of people, taking home the podium, taking home that top spot followed by Sergio Perez and George Russell from the Mercedes team. So you had both Red Bulls in the one and two spots, Russell in third, which again, wouldn't be that out of the ordinary, but everyone's looking around going, wait a minute, there's no Ferraris up top there. Well, mm. that's because Charles Leclerc had to retire during the middle of this race. Didn't even make it halfway. I want to say it was around lap 23, where all of a sudden the car in the heat over there, which was touching north of 100 degrees Fahrenheit, Forced the car to retire, whether the engine, the computer on board. I don't think Ferrari had, at least what I saw, released the cause of the malfunction yet. But the car was losing engine power, had to go back in, and so knocked Ferrari completely out of the podium for this race here. You saw Lewis Hamilton battling at certain points in this. The Mercedes definitely seemed like they've made some worthwhile tweaks in this. But, Brandon, it was just one of those with all of that drama leading up to this point, and it leads with Max Verstappen, who looks kind of like a duck and is at times the most hateable character in this Formula One universe, winning yet again because he is that good as a heel in this sport. It was 
an incredibly exciting race, but again, it really, for me, is about all eyes forward on the Monaco Grand Prix, which is where, if you're an American, you've probably seen those video highlights of Tom Brady clad in white throwing a pass off of a super yacht to a guy that you didn't know before you watched Drive to Survive and then watched Drive to Survive and realized, oh, wait, that's Daniel Ricardo. He's the one that Tom Brady was throwing that pass to on a yacht inside a marina that's right next to the city course right on the side of Monaco. So very excited for that one. That's going to be the one to watch. Brandon, let's get to that. And that was what we saw in the Premier League. It was the final day of the Premier League calendar, the final fixtures of the season. And we had so much at stake here. You had simultaneously going on. Manchester City at the top of the pile, neck and neck with Liverpool, trying to hold them off there. Coming back from down 2-0 to Aston Villa in this game, scoring three unanswered goals in five minutes of game time. Unreal. To hoist the Premier League Championship at the end of this season. You had that going on, so they edge out Liverpool, at the same time that you had Tottenham and Arsenal battling it out for the final Champions League spot for fourth place in the Premier League. The Spurs get that. Shout out to Sunman Kimes, the mother of Mina Kimes, friend of the podcast, noted celebrity Tottenham Hotspurs, Tottenham Spurs fan, out here getting to enjoy a fantastic weekend. When Mama Kimes is happy, so the world is happy. And so we are thrilled on that one. Even though as a Chelsea fan, I know I'm not supposed to like the Spurs. I understand that. We're going to set that aside is the Sunman Kimes clause in all of this. But then, Brandon, this was the real moment that I think separates this sport for so many people from everyone else is the concept of relegation and what we saw take place on this weekend. Because all the way at the bottom of the bracket, we had what was going on with Burnley uh, Burnley and Leeds. These two teams separated minimally by points. I think it was about one point that separated where to start the day, Burnley was safe and Leeds was on the outside looking in, facing relegation. But Leeds managed to go out and win their game late in the action, while Burnley went down 2-0, managed to score a goal late. And at one point, Brandon, I was so reminded of Ted Lasso in this game. Like, we talk about what Ted Lasso has or hasn't done for soccer in this country. They had the moment late in this game where everyone in the crowd at Burnley was all of a sudden getting messages on their phone. Because if you're an American fan who doesn't follow the Premier League, they play all of the final day matches at the same time. They all kicked off at 11 o'clock Eastern uh, in the U.S. and are going at the same time. So as these games go on, you see the news start to trickle into the crowd. And that crowd for Burnley started to get the news that, oh man, all right, Leeds has Leeds is tied up. All we have to do is tie and we'll be able to hold our place here. And then quickly Leeds managed to go get another goal. And now all of a sudden Burnley was fucked. But, you know, so it lasted pretty quickly. But it was just amazing sitting there. My brother who does not watch Premier League soccer, doesn't really watch much soccer. I was explaining all that to him. And like genuine excitement was taking hold as we watched this team battle with an absolute force unknown to mankind because they faced relegation which like again it's hard for we talk about this all the time as like american fans would love this for their sport most of y'all probably wouldn't actually love it for your sport but like what ends up happening as a result of this financially for these teams brandon is absolutely insane just to give you an idea this was back in 2015 when things like this happen 
Most players had their salaries dropped 40 to 50%. Jumping up to the Premier League, and this was 2015, so I think this was a full TV deal ago for the Premier League. In 2015, making the jump from the next league below up to the Premier League, the top group of teams, sometimes triples the revenue from television that comes into your club. It is absolutely insane what happens to you when you fall off the face of the earth out of this. And so as a result, you get these guys playing with their hair on fire. And it feels gross to watch because you know what's about to happen to all these people should they lose. But it is some of the most compelling two hours of television I have ever watched on a Sunday. It was incredible. Again, if you're an American sports fan who's just tuned all this out because you can't stand it, I will give you one connective tissue. This is exactly why Adam Silver wants shit like that midseason tournament so much, why he loves the play-in tournament, because what this final day had was different stakes for different people all over the place. You had teams, again, the top four in the Premier League make something called the Champions League, which is another big tournament in Europe. You have the person who comes in first in all of this wins the Premier League. You have people on the bottom trying to avoid relegation. You have different stakes for everyone so that someone's got something to be interesting. And it doesn't always come down to the end like that, but it gives you the opportunity for that. And I think that's why Adam Silver, in a league that is fighting to have its regular season mean anything to fans and advertisers, is constantly looking for ways to keep people engaged like this because he looks at what European soccer's been able to do and he says, man, when it hits, it really, really hits. And Brandon, that brings us all the way to the third. Because boy, oh boy, when this hits, you guys are going to be so sick of me. Because we got college lacrosse final four set in men's and women's lacrosse here. The women's tournament, which begins May 27th in Baltimore, you can check it out on ESPNU, is going to feature number one ranked North Carolina versus number four Northwestern and number two Maryland versus third ranked Boston College. And on the men's side, shocker, shocker, more Terps involved in this, you got the number one ranked Maryland Terrapins against Princeton and Cornell versus Rutgers. That is popping off May 28th right here in Hartford, Connecticut. I am jacked up for lacrosse in my backyard. Anyone, if you've known me for any amount of time, knows lacrosse is like my passion project. I have gotten to cover it at ESPN. I played it in middle school and high school, and it is just a blast. Early odds on this one, I have not been able to digest much of the women's game this year, so I'm not as apt to call that side. Maryland's going to win the men's side. They are going to win it in a bruising fashion. How do I know this, Brandon? Because they showed up, They showed up, Brandon, for their quarterfinal matchup against Virginia wearing all-black helmets. And Brandon, as soon as they showed up on there, Logan Wisnowskis and the rest of these guys on this Maryland team chose only violence. It was the only item on your menu. They kept looking in the cabinet for something else, and the only thing they could find is violence. (laughs) Brandon, those black helmets were the only thing similar to black uh, black Air Force Ones that I have ever seen someone wear on a lacrosse field. Where, again, you know as soon as that person walks up, it is your funeral they are coming to. Not theirs, not anyone they care about, your funeral and that is what Maryland has been they are undefeated at this point in the season John Tillman has been knocking on the door of this for a while their head coach and I have a feeling they are going to kick that door open and tap dance all over everyone along the way I am not surprised to hear that Maryland not only has the tactical strategic skillful advantage but the oh shit they just got off the bus advantage with the black helmets 
that every team should have. You got you got to strike a little bit of fear into the team you're going into. And I know everyone's probably taking score on how much I just don't know about all these sports that we're talking about. Here we go again for this. I don't need to be an expert nope. in college lacrosse because Maryland, they're like the LeBron James of lacrosse. Like, I just know that Maryland's going to be in it. I just know that they're going to be a force. I just know that they're probably going to be favorites to win. And talk about a helicopter jumping in. I like jumping into the to the the very the very last game of the college lacrosse. Like the, that 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 game is usually fire flames. Listen, you guys will hear me bark about it all week. We will probably talk to Anish Shroff, who's going to be on the call for championship weekend in college lacrosse. Memorial Day weekend is my pitch every year. Every sport has that one holiday that they like to try and plant as their own. And I know the Indy 500 is going on Memorial Day weekend as well. But I think college lacrosse has done a good job of this as any sport that there is. I think it is one of the most visually enjoyable sports there are. And I think, again, in this Maryland team, you have got a great gateway. Much like we talked about Connor McDavid, this is an awesome team to watch go out and bludgeon people. And if you're ever going to check it out, you will get my full sales pitch on this Thursday or Friday. This is the weekend to do so. So congrats to all those teams that made their way all the way through. Congrats to you for making this far. Against all odds, somehow, some way, listening all to this point, remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate all of them. We appreciate Bo, a.k.a. 80, who decided to give us a five-star review and leave us his top five Catholic songs in honor of the debate we had last week between Catholic songs and gospel music. He said, number one, on Eagle's Wings. Number two, You Are Mine. Number three, All Are Welcome. Four, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And number five, This Is the Day a.k.a. Psalm 118. Okay, this is the day the Lord is made. I will be glad and rejoice in it. I, I do love that. But I do feel like that, I feel like this is the the definitive top five. I feel like I, there may not be a lot of, lot of subs in here. Well, I will say, I don't know if they're listeners of the pod or not. Play Like a Champ 5 tweeted us in this, uh, tagged us on this post. Uh, One Foot Down, which is the Notre Dame blog for SB Nation, yesterday actually so oddly enough maybe they were listening or seeing us on twitter they tweeted the top 10 catholic bangers for a beautiful notre dame morning because remember church does have bangers they do so there's uh their top five a little bit similar i am the bread of life sitting at number one number two on eagle's wings number three here i am lord number four one bread one body which wow Ooh, number five taste and see Taste and see. Numbers. Taste and see. Oh, taste and see. That's the like pre-communion hymn. Uh, Gloria at number six. Ave Maria, which wasn't aware that counts as a Catholic hymn, but you know, get it how you live. Uh, number eight, Lord of the Dance. <laughs> number nine, We Are One with the Spirit. And number ten, This is the Feast. So okay, solid outfit from the folks at One Foot Down. Again, if you want to keep weighing in on that. Weigh in in the comments, in the reviews on Apple Podcasts for us after leaving a five-star rating. But they're doing exhaustive work. I will say pun intended, doing the Lord's work. Amen. Amen. We're all out here doing the Lord's work the best way we can, trying to uh, mm-hmm. get our purpose out there in life. This is my purpose, so I am going to come, and I'm going to take that as the new definitive 10 list. And I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back with something for, for each one of them things. You know what I'm saying? And, I, and I, I'll, I'll put in one Bible verse in there. You know what I'm saying? Just to, you know. Because I think that is important. The harmonizing of a, of a strict of a straight up Bible verse is is quite literally the gospel. 
So that is that is always my favorite part of like Catholic mass. I just went back to mass for the first time in, in a long time uh, you, at sir. a wedding. And um, I always enjoy when the priest has to like just sing song, some arbitrary line in the mass where he's just like, he's been talking and all of a sudden he goes, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. And you know, the priest is kind of looking forward to getting those bars off once a mass, just to remind you that lest you forget, he is still that dude. Once you enter that biblical house. <laughs> um, Yo, they let that amen breathe, too. They let that amen breathe. Oh, my gosh. Amen. You think there's, like, a, a group chat of, like, the chaplains of the uh, choir boys, like, hey, shh, you killed that amen, boy. You, you held that, <laughs> that 10 count. I love to think they get back and they've got the soundboard like T-Pain on his podcast where they just do bomb drops when they come back after one of those. Another uh. one. Another one. Where'd you find Ooh. that? <laughs> God's going to take him to church for that one. You see the lady in the pew right there? She wasn't even ready to, to accept God to her life until you hit that, that extra amen yeah. with, that, with, that, with that hum. If people knew they were allowed to catch the ghosts in Catholic Mass, she'd have been one. She'd have been one. But it said she just sat there real quiet like. Oh, my gosh. Holy church. Ghost or Holy Spirit. Oh, man. <laughs> That's a debate for another day. Thank you to everyone who made it this far. Thank you for listening uh, once again, and uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow.